9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkoff, and I am in sweltering New York City. I am pleased to be joined today by... Dr. Brian Kloss, an assistant professor and lecturer in global politics at University College London and also columnist for the Washington Post. Hi, Brian. Hello. And by, in Washington, D.C., Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Hello. And uh, on her way to some TV studio to talk about some crisis someplace, uh, Evelyn Farkas of the German Marshall Fund. That's me. Thanks, David. And the crisis changes every hour. And if you went around and went into newsrooms across America and said, what's the big news story of the week? They would undoubtedly say, mm, Robert Mueller is testifying on Wednesday. But I don't think it's the big news story of the week. So I'd like to talk to you about a couple others that are, and then we can come back to that. Um, and... Let me start with you, Ed, if I might. Um, uh, I think the big story is what's happening in Hong Kong. To me, seven weeks of protests, getting more violent, staying just as big um, in this city that has depended on its autonomy for so long and that is so influential in the context of China, uh, and the Chinese seemingly uh, growing inclination to crack down. Seems like it's headed for a big crisis. Um, and uh, I'm just wondering if you agree. Yeah, well, you know, um, my, my first stint in journalist as a young journalist, as a young journalist was on the South China Morning Post, which was then and remains now um, Hong Kong's main English language newspaper. And I remember then my Hong Kong friends, my Chinese Hong Kong friends complaining that Hong Kong was too apolitical and that people only cared about money and that um, it, wasn't, um, it, it wasn't capable of standing up for its own rights. And that seems like a very long time ago. It's an incredibly politicized place. The fact that you know, almost a third of the population came out um, against this extradition law that the Carrie Lam government, the Chinese selected um, chief executive of Hong Kong government wanted to put in place um, is, I think, the most positive democratic development in the world at the moment in, in, in a sea of very negative stories about the fates of the direction of democracies. We're seeing Xi Jinping being challenged and he blinked first. Now, you know, the story is by no means over. The demonstrations continue. As you mentioned, they're getting more violent. But it's a hugely, hugely important story, not only for the discussion about the future of China, but also for Taiwan, because this whole extradition um, uh, situation was prompted by the murder, um, a, a murder um, by a Hong Kong national in Taiwan. And Taiwan, of course, sees Hong Kong as a canary in the coal mine in terms of whether it would be worth joining this one country, two systems um, arrangement that Hong Kong has and Taiwan itself has 
a very, very important presidential election coming up in uh, January. And so watching how Xi Jinping, uh, the most autocratic Chinese leader in, uh, in a long time, watching how he responds to this, which has so far been, I would say, wise, you know, not to do, not to take the Tiananmen Square approach, but to basically allow Carrie Lam to give in to, to some degree to the protesters. Watching his ultimate reaction to this is going to be, I would agree with you, the most, or at least one of the most important political stories in the world this year. Yeah, I think so. Now, Brian, you studied democracy. By the way, I should mention you're also the host of a podcast called Power Corrupts. And so you, you've studied, um, in particular recently, you've studied um, uh, where America comes out on, on some of these issues and where our president comes out on some of these issues. And uh, you know, one of the things that strikes me is that were these seven weeks of protest to take place uh, under a prior presidency, certainly under the Obama presidency, you might have heard um, criticism uh, uh, for the crackdown, uh, for the uh, or or a warning to the Chinese not to go too far. Last night, uh, uh, yesterday in Hong Kong, there were uh, um, uh, uh, thugs armed with uh, uh, truncheons who were going through crowds of people and beating them. Seems like it's taking a different turn, and yet the United States has remained silent. So, do you, how do you think that figures in this equation? Yeah, I think there's a few different angles of this story that are really important for understanding the Trump presidency and its effect on democracy around the world. The first is that this is one of the only places in the world, with a few other exceptions, maybe Sudan, for example, where people are genuinely fighting back against what has otherwise been a march forward for dictators for the last 12 years, where the world has been declining, that the world's democracy has been declining steadily every year. And part of that is a story that has been accelerated, I would argue, under the Trump presidency, where he's basically selling out all of these democratic activists around the world. I mean, I, I've done research in sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe. And what all of the activists say is that we cannot win this fight alone, right? That, that, that when it's dictators or despots versus protesters, the protests almost always lose and they almost always get crushed. And that's where the West is supposed to come in and at least put some rhetorical pressure, if not actual genuine political pressure, on, on regimes not to go too far. And I think, you know, when you hear Trump talk about despots, dictators, whether it's President Xi or, or, or Kim Jong-un, who he's in love with, it's, it's much more of a, a, an adoration or an admiration than it is a chastisement. And I think that has a serious effect. And this is something that I've argued for a long time is going to be the hidden cost of the Trump presidency a bill that we likely won't pay until after he's out of office when we realize how much more leash these dictators have gotten when they look to the White House and see either silence or encouragement. So, Evelyn, you were not too long ago in Asia and dealing with uh, 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 people interested in security in Asia. And uh, uh, I think I, I was specifically, I was uh, like two weeks ago in Taiwan and about four weeks ago in Hong Kong. So, just to be specific, right? Well, very that, relevant. That's what I was getting getting to. Um, clearly, this is a a, a fraught moment, um, and uh, we have a different U.S. calculus, a different Chinese calculus. 
playing into it. And I, you know, to me, one of the things that's so striking is here you have China, largest country in the world, uh, so one of essentially two superpowers in the world right now, um, and and a crisis um, brewing that could have implications there and in Taiwan uh, and for democracy around the world. Uh, and it doesn't get much bandwidth here. I'm wondering what, while you were there, were the views? Frankly speaking, the in Taiwan, I mean, we met with senior officials, I'm not going to name names, but they were very clear that watching what was happening in Hong Kong was alarming to them because President Xi, in the beginning of this year, had given a very blustery speech on January 2nd, I believe it was. I think I mentioned it in one of the last podcasts. Um, you know, saying that he that China was prepared to use any means to basically reunite Taiwan with mainland China. And of course, Taiwan is a separate state um, and doesn't look too kindly on this kind of belligerent language. And then the Chinese government, the whole idea of two systems, which they've also proposed to the Taiwanese in different words, was made to look like a huge lie by the demonstrations in Hong Kong. So for the Taiwanese, they just felt very strongly that they're on the front line. At the time, the demonstrations were not occurring in Hong Kong. As I said, it was about two or three weeks ago. But they were, they. oh no, sorry, they had started and they were concerned. Um, so one of the issues here is the president's indifference to issues pertaining to democracy and his fondness for dictators. Um, Ed, another of the issues that comes into play here is the president's really, really profound ignorance. And I'm not saying this in a politicized way, although clearly some people may take it that way. But the, the ignorance of, of President Trump on foreign policy issues uh, and on issues like this uh, and the potential danger of it all came into really sharp focus today when the president had a meeting with Prime Minister uh, Imran Khan of Pakistan, um, who, uh, by the way, arrived in this country and didn't get an official welcome, had to take the, the, the transport vehicle across Dulles Airport, and no one was there there to greet him. Um, but Trump, in short order, said he would go and campaign for Imran Khan. A um, uh, little strange for U.S. president. Then said uh, that uh, you know he uh, uh, envied uh, the views of the you know the the press views of Imran Khan, um, who has been suppressing the press to some uh, substantial degree there, uh, and then said he would mediate the Kashmir dispute. Um, uh, and and did so in a way that was so so deeply chilling, saying, you know, okay, here Kashmir's a beautiful place, but there's lots of bombs there. There's bombs everywhere. Um, but then he implied that Modi had also asked him to do that, which led to the Indian government uh, completely disavowing that Modi had done any such thing, requesting Trump to act as a mediator. Uh, and then to add to this whole panoply of stupidity, uh, uh, Trump also then made a comment about Afghanistan in which he said, well, we could have won in Afghanistan in 10 days. Um, I just didn't want to kill 10 million people. 
it, it was it was you know bewildering. You're now you're an expert in the subcontinent. I'm just wondering what your take was on all this. Well, I, I mean, any sort of basic briefing um, that any president gets on the India-Pakistan situation is that India views um, the Kashmir uh, troubles uh, as an internal problem, fueled by Pakistan-supplied militants, terrorists, infiltrations. Um, and that they have always rigidly rejected any third party mediation. Initially, it was Britain who, of course, created the problem through partition um, that, you know, was offering to be the third party mediator, which India always axiomatically and with some reason took to be a pro-Pakistan position because it implicitly, it explicitly recognizes it as an international border problem, um, which India rejects. So Trump either didn't receive that briefing or more likely didn't read it. Um, the fact that, you know, Trump, like his predecessors, uh, at least officially, wants to improve relations with India um, and develop the natural alliance with India um, for really bleedingly obvious reasons, because it's a counterbalance to China. Um, the fact that Trump doesn't realize this will alienate, alienate the most important natural ally he could possibly have in what his his most important um, priority geopolitically, which is the the uh, the rivalry with China, is shockingly ignorant. This isn't just your average, you know, forget whether the guys from Lithuania or Montenegro kind of um, gaff. This is spectacular ignorance with consequences. The Indians, you know, Indians are very very thin skinned about this, um, and you, you've got the MEA, the Ministry of External Affairs in Delhi now, up all night, um, scrambling to respond to this. Um, lobbed ham diplomatic ham hand grenade. Um, and, you know, that's without mentioning, you know, all the other gaffes he got into on, on Afghanistan. It, it, it is shocking. It's not just that this is amusing Trump displaying ignorance. They, it, comments like this have very, very serious uh, consequences. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no kidding. And uh, Brian, you know, uh, one of the things that's striking is, you know, sort of Trump's willingness to embrace, you know, Imran Khan without having much of a sense of who he was, who he is. Anyway, I think he probably looked at him and said, oh, well, this is a handsome guy who cuts kind of a nice image as a prime minister. And um, he, you know, speaks respectfully and articulate to me. He must be on our side. Uh, and he fails to grasp um, the profound divisions that exist within the Pakistani government uh, historically and currently, or um, uh, some of the less savory traits of uh, Imran Khan's uh, brand of populism. And I'm just wondering what your view is on and how this fits into this whole um, a sort of a puzzle of, of, of American views towards despots, despotism, uh, and the decline of democracy? Well, I mean, I don't think that even if Trump knew um, about unsavory aspects of, of just about any regime, he would care. Um, and, and I also think that these off-the-cuff comments that he tends to make in these meetings, um, as Ed rightly said, you know, they have consequences. The problem is that they might have consequences in six months or in a year or in two years, as countries slowly start to change their geostrategic outlook based on the fallout from things that Trump says as an offhanded aside out of ignorance, right? And this is where I think one of the one of the things that journalists should do a little bit more 
during the Trump administration years is to ask him point blank questions. You know, like, where is Kashmir? Things like this where, where he can't simply just wiggle out of it because that ignorance should be on display for people as they go into next year to vote. And, and I think it would give Democrats a more clear opening to say, this is dangerous, right? That this person who is making decisions about a place where there's a standoff with nuclear weapons involved also is threatening to kill 10 million people in Afghanistan in a sort of backhanded comment in the same breath, right? That that is actually something that matters. And so, you know, all of this stuff where he has these little media availabilities with world leaders and doesn't do his homework, he, he, he tends to boast about how he knows everything. And I think it should be made clear that he does not know almost anything about these places. Yeah, and of course, it produces instant consequences. The Indian media immediately started condemning Trump's Kashmir lie um, and, uh, and, and again, you know, questioning his credibility and his competence. Um, and, uh, you know, the, this is just the beginning of, of what is undoubtedly going to be aftershocks of all of this. Uh, Evelyn, I get the impression that you are heading off um, to the to no, immediate. I'm I'm here. I'm here, and I have no. something. Can I say? Oh, sure. If you were going to, I was going to actually deftly tilt this on towards Iran. But go you're ahead. You're not. You're not going to believe this, David. I'm in a makeup chair in the NBC studios, getting eyeliner applied to my eyelids, while I'm I, about I, to. I do believe it. I'm sure that's weighty that's topic. I'm sure this is exactly what's happening to Ed at the FT Studios right now. <laughs> so yeah, I, I wish you could I, see me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, but what I wanted to say was, I think, I mean, I actually think Brian makes a brilliant point, and we should be doing that more. You know, we, I mean, in the media world, people should be doing that more, but everybody should be doing that more, making it, it really clear how little this president knows. And because most people are not following his statements uh, and, and the backhanded comment about, you know, bombing the Afghans. I mean, that was appalling. What, what, what's more appalling is that he doesn't understand that these meetings are not for television ratings or pretty pictures. I mean, these meetings are supposed to be designed to advance America's foreign policy. Imran Khan was in the White House so that he would help President Trump and uh, the special envoy to Afghanistan bring a tenable peace to Afghanistan, which is impossible without the complete buy-in of the government of Pakistan and in particular the military, the military, uh, the Pakistani military. So, you know, that's why that meeting was taking place. Make no mistake, that was exactly why that meeting was taking place. And unfortunately, I don't think anything the president said necessarily strengthened the hand again, of Zalmay Khalilazad, Ambassador Khalilazad, who is, who is our envoy right now, trying to bring some peace to Afghanistan. Because the, the sanctuary for the, the bad guys, if you will, that we're dealing with, one of the, one of the, the major bad guys, if you will, the Taliban, for, for, is, is in Pakistan, over the border. So the, the problem has to include the lot the loss to some extent of cover from the Pakistani government if they if they don't abide by the terms of whatever agreement we are able to hammer out. Yeah, so you know, Ed, um, we 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 see you know the 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 president's lack of character having an impact in Hong Kong, his lack of character and ignorance having an impact in Pakistan. Uh, 
and now you know we can go and take both and uh, extend them and and political pettiness to his approach to what's going on in Iran, where we now have um, a British tanker with an international crew uh, being held up by the Iranians. We have more um, uncertainty about the ability of ships to go through the Straits of Hormuz. Um, uh, and we have a situation that is deteriorating, um, all precipitated by the president's decision to pull out of the JCPOA, primarily because it was an Obama-era issue. Uh, you know, in fact, one of the things that strikes me is, um, as they say, you know, I'm old enough to remember when Obama took office and the memos that he was getting, one of the memos said, you know, the most dangerous place in the world is Pakistan, uh, something that this president doesn't seem to have glommed onto. Uh, but clearly, Iran was also seen in a similar light. Um, and and I'm just wondering how you're seeing the current deterioration in Iran or with the international situation with respect to Iran. Uh, I think, uh, and as, as um, either, either Brian or Evelyn said, uh, you know, you don't need to see the consequences within one week, three weeks, six weeks. The, the chickens will come home to roost and are coming home to roost of Trump's foreign policy actions all around the globe. I mean, Iran, I think, is probably the most potent and dangerous right now. Um, but what um, the way he's handling the peace talks with the Taliban in Afghanistan, what is the provocations we just discussed with India, the selling the Hong Kong protesters down the river, the stuff he began before he was even inaugurated in terms of taking um, the call from Taiwan's president and breaking all precedent in doing that, that the, the, it's very hard to overstate the degree to which this causes the rest of the world to completely distrust um, the United States president and to take actions, uh, in some of which might be hedging uh, against America remaining like this, others of which you know might be escalating, such as Iran now, challenging, provoking, seeing whether... Um, whether Trump is going to respond, that are pyromaniacal. I mean, he is playing with fire wherever, wherever he finds a situation. And partly it stems from, as you mentioned, David, in your question, his determination to undo anything associated with Obama. Um, partly it's based on his extraordinary um, self-belief in his personal ability to do deals. And partly it's based uh, on a contempt for the values and norms that almost every predecessor in the White House has upheld, um, even if they've done so hypocritically sometimes, for freedom of expression, for political representation, and so forth. So, uh, you know, the Iran situation, I can't predict. Um, but uh, the, the, po the point is he has unilaterally and qu quite, quite... Um, um, uh, willingly, quite, quite, um, in a quite unprovoked way, created a, a dramatically more dangerous situation than there needed to have been. And I think it's almost certainly doubled, tripled the chances that Iran will become a nuclear state. So, Brian, um, when uh, asked about Iran during his meeting with uh, Prime Minister Khan, um, 
the, uh, the shoot down of a drone came up and the, the, the president said, they lie a lot. We took down one of their drones. Instead of saying, yeah, that happened, they lied. They said it didn't happen. So there's a lot of proof. It's called, take a look at it on the ocean floor. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's not funny. I know it's 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 not. This is a very serious situation. But but um, we do have a situation where because the president lies so much, nobody in the world knows whether to believe him when he says something like he shot down a drone. Yeah, I mean, this is again where where consequences build up over time. I mean, the the Iran crisis is one that was extremely predictable when Trump unilaterally withdrew that it was going to create volatility in the region. And Trump's constant lies, I mean, for years, people have been saying correctly that they will have a consequence when the, nobody believes the White House anymore. And the fact that, you know, the first act of this president was to go out and talk about crowd size at his inauguration set the standard for a White House that had shattered credibility from day one. And so, you know, in in, in London, you do hear conspiracy theories from educated people saying, oh, you know, I think they're faking this or whatever. Because you can't trust anything Trump says. And so, you know, over time, this affects our relationship with allies. I mean, you have Pompeo saying, effectively, Brits have to take care of their own ships, right? I mean, it's not exactly a resounding endorsement of the special relationship and the protective umbrella of the United States. In Germany, where, where people in public polls suggest that they view Russia as favorably as they view the United States under Trump, you know, the, the, the magazine cover of one of the major magazines this week was Trump basically doing a Nazi salute wrapped in the shroud of an American flag after his racist comments. And so, you know, all this stuff, it comes back to bite us, whether it's immediate or not. It's going to have a serious price to pay when allies either don't trust us based on our word or don't trust that we have the same values as them or start to look for different partners and to hedge towards the Chinese or the Russians. And all of this you know, with the Iran, with the Iran volatility, I think comes back to the fact that miscalculation is how wars start. It's rare that you have situations in the modern world where things are simply deliberate attacks, uh, but miscalculation can very quickly escalate into a situation that no one can control. And Trump so far has been lucky, and I hope our luck doesn't run out. Uh, well, question is how long it will take for the luck to run out. Uh, Evelyn, I'm sure you're all made up now, uh, perhaps. Uh, but I, I think you're going on to talk about Iran and the situation there. And so I'd like to get your 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 views on this. One of the things that strikes me, one of my regular criticisms that I had of the Obama administration was that all issues were seen kind of uh, tactically. Um, there, there was no big strategy for the region. There was no you know, if you pull out of Iraq X or if you pull out of Syria Y, or you know, there, there, there wasn't connecting of of each of these things, and you know, it seems, you know, in this particular case, that there was no thought given to what would happen if we pull out of JCPOA. There's also no thought given to what happens when we do pull out of Afghanistan, or what happens if we do soften our position towards uh, Pakistan, or what is the consequence of giving Syria over to Russia associated with all of this or um, uh, so. Right. And, 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 yeah, and yeah. just, you know, th there's no grand strategy. There's no medi medium level strategy. This is just fumbling around in a dark closet. 
Well, and the end result is that basically, you know, other other countries are benefiting. I mean, if we if we can't connect the dots and come up with a good global or a regional even strategy, then the other then our opponents, the other countries are going to be the ones that are advancing a well thought out you know, medium and long-term strategy. So um, it's it's shocking to me that this administration continues to back out of agreements and then and then fail to have a really good negotiating plan for replacement. I mean, we've seen that with, obviously, with this Iran agreement. We've seen it with trade agreements. Uh, luckily, I guess it seems like we, we may have a new trade agreement. So slightly revised trade agreement with Mexico and Canada, though I don't know that we needed all the turmoil that it that it brought us in the process. Um, so, so the lack of a strategy is really disconcerting. Uh, we see the president dealing with Iran as if it's in uh, in isolation, but it's not. It, it, the The relationship with Saudi Arabia is a key component of all of this, and we have let the Saudis get away with murder, the brutal murder in another country of a journalist who was a U.S. resident, Jamal Khashoggi, um, and that has emboldened the Saudis in all kinds of ways because, uh, they, obviously, first and foremost on human rights, but but they are now getting arms from us, and despite Congress's direct opposition, and and the tension between Saudi Arabia and Iran has never been greater. Um, so so you layer on top of that our tension with Iran, the nervousness of the Europeans, but yet their relative weakness. And and one other thing I have to really point out now, it's just so so criminal and and cruel almost the fact that what's happening in Hong Kong, these demonstrations, and the, the, the demonstrations which are occurring as a result of the Chinese government not living up to promises it made to the United Kingdom as it transferred, as the United Kingdom transferred Hong Kong back to China. There was a promise that they would have a, a two- you know, to to uh, that that Hong Kong would continue to have some amount of democracy. So, uh, the United Kingdom is 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 powerless because they're in the middle of a transition and they've been dealing with Brexit. So they're not helping in the democratic cause. And then when we see them being challenged on the open waters in. Uh, in the in the Straits of Hormuz, where is NATO? Where are the allies? They need to be more engaged. And so there's, it's unfortunate that this president is, is really doing everything without strategy and also without our normal allies. No kidding. And so, Ed, you know what we uh, end up with um, is 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 danger and mayhem and and it's all related to these flaws in Trump's personality and and of course perhaps this has a positive side cuz no other country would make the same kind of crazy ass mistake as electing somebody that flawed um uh to to be it's, it's <laughs> I can see why this is very favorite. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, it's it's later there there is an op-ed in the New York Times today the day we're recording this Monday uh uh, the headline of which is Boris Johnson is how Britain ends, not with a bang, but with a burst of blonde ambition. And one of the quotes from this article is Boris Johnson, whose laziness is proverbial and opportunism legendary, is a man well practiced in deceit, a pander willing to tickle the prejudices of his audience for easy gain. His personal life is incontinent his public record inconsequential. And that sounds so 
so familiar, and we've talked about it here before, but this is the week it looks like Boris Johnson is going to ascend to the heavy side layer of uh, British politics. Um, uh, and that's, of course, a reference to not just Cats, but to the Cats uh, trailer for the film version of Cats, which we will talk about in some future episode um, as one of the most stunningly bad things I've ever seen. But but here here we are in this week, Ed, and I'm just wondering how you're feeling about it. Um, so last week, uh, one of the debates, um, leadership debates with his nominal opponent, Jeremy Hunt, the British Foreign Secretary. Um, Boris did something he's been doing for 30 years, which is he told us a, a big lie about Brussels. He held up a kipper from the Isle of Man and he said, Brussels mandates that this fish has to have a, an ice pillow um, packed in if it's going to be sent by mail. Um, and that's a regulation that's crippling British ingenuity, blah, 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 blah. But that was an easily disprovable lie. Um, he knew already he was going to be prime minister, that he's going to be elected, but almost certainly will be um, when the results come in on Tuesday. Um, and yet he chose to tell the lie again. Why? Why would he choose to tell a bald-faced lie um, about something he would be instantly disproved on? And the answer to that is a very depressing answer, because that's how he got to where he is. That's why he's about to become prime minister of Britain, because he's been making stuff up for 30 years since being Daily Telegraph correspondent in Brussels. And the bigger the lie, the more exotic, the more it panders to people's prejudices of you know, what French and Germans and, and continentals in general are like, um, the more reward he has received. The bigger the lie, the bigger the reward. And it has taken him to Downing Street. And he knows he's lying, that's the thing. There is a sort of deep nihilism about Boris Johnson. Um, he knows he's lying. And he knows that people applaud him for it. Um, and that's a very, very bleak insight into the condition of Britain, because it's not just a, a measure of Boris Johnson's character or lack of, lack of character. It's a measure of the country that is make, making him prime minister, and notwithstanding the fact that the actual electorate, Tory Conservative Party electorate, is very tiny. Um, he has been... He has been going from strength to strength through profound dishonesty. Um, and it's what people want. We get the governments we deserve. And so what makes me depressed about this is that Boris is in some deep sense a reflection of Britain um, today. If you're asking sort of a larger question about, you know, you know how this plays into Trumpism, well, I think now you've got, you've got a potentially... Um, um, very Trumpian um, foreign policy coming out of Britain. Uh, you know, I've known Boris for 30 years. I was in Brussels um, as a trainee um, at the European Commission. I didn't like it and I left, but I got to know him then. And I know two of his siblings, Joe Johnson, who's a member of parliament and who was at the Financial Times with me, um, uh, and the middle brother, Leo, who's a close friend. I know them very well. And I know that Boris doesn't read any briefs when he was Britain's foreign secretary. He would go into meetings and he would ask the dumbest questions because he hadn't bothered to read. They're usually very pithy, very efficient foreign office briefings um, that they, the papers they gave to him before meeting who or whatever prime minister or foreign ministry was going to meet. Um, and that by comparison, the kinds of briefings you get when you're in Downing Street, much more complicated. There's much more of them. They're much less pithy. 
He's not going to be reading any of this stuff. Reading stuff is not how he got here. Not reading stuff is how he got here. And that is, it, in essence, Trumpian. He is, a, he is a Trumpian figure. So I'm afraid, you know, I, I don't have any silver linings. I, I know lots of my friends and colleagues and some of Boris's siblings are desperately trying to find silver linings in this situation, but there aren't any. This is, this is utterly bleak. Well then, um, Brian, you, you moved from the U.S. to the U.K. and you've been there for eight years. Where are you going now? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's amazing being an American over here. It's, it's, it's which one is more depressing. You know, you look, you look at the U.K. papers, you look at the U.S. papers, and it's just falling apart. I mean, I, I think the thing, you know, to pick up on Ed's point about the bleakness, just because I think we should depress people even more, uh, is, is this – amazing tradition that the UK government has when a new prime minister takes office, which I, I only recently learned about. Um, and I, I've done a podcast episode about it, which comes out this week, called The Letters of Last Resort, which is that Boris is going to sit down either tomorrow or Wednesday and be handed four sheets of paper in which he has to handwrite his instructions to the four captains of the Trident submarines, which are the nuclear deterrent for the UK, on what to do if London is obliterated by a nuclear blast. And so either tomorrow or on Wednesday, Boris Johnson will have a pen in his hand and will be giving those instructions to the uh, the nuclear submarines. And the character of the two people with the West's most impressive and important nuclear arsenal is not one that is cause for comfort, I would say. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Evelyn, can you imagine the letters of last resort that Donald Trump would write? I don't even know what to say anymore because that brings me to arms control and the fact that we have a, a steep erosion of arms control started really by the Russians. But if you look at what's happened internationally, um, I know you wanted me to say something funny about what Donald Trump would put in a letter, but I, I, I'm just too distressed at the fact that all of our international regimes, our international resolve is um, disintegrating. So are we going to, you know, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, I guess we're going to deter the Russians from using their new nuclear weapons, some, some either by developing our own weapons or using conventional weapons. But what about the extension of the New START Treaty? So I, I guess I, I'm using this as a segue to nuclear arms control. And, you know, we started with Pakistan. I was executive director of this congressional commission, which had a horrible name, the Com Commission on the Prevention of WMD Proliferation and Terrorism. And that was that report that came out during Obama, the transition between Bush and Obama. And that report said Pakistan was the number one threat because of loose nukes. But again, let's not forget 90% of the world's strategic nuclear weapons are held either by the U.S. or by uh, Russia. Of course, the UK and France also have nuclear weapons arsenals as well. And then we know about the rogue states where North Korea has weapons. India and China, of course, are not considered rogue states, but they also have weapons. So the, the international order is really under assault. Brian knows and has written a lot about the, how it's under assault by autocracies, um, autocracies assaulting our democracy. But there's, there's, it's more than that. It's also an assault on our security, on these arrangements that, did, that created common, common 
security, common peace, common stability, common human rights. And, it, and these countries like Russia, China, they want to go back to balance of power, you know, sp sphere of, sphere of uh, influence system where might makes right and, um, and the international order can't con constrain them. And unfortunately, people like John Bolton, our national security advisor, and our president appear to have the same philosophical bent. Yes, they do. Um, and folks out there listening in Deep State Radio Land, um, you know, what we've tried to do here is to say, even though the Mueller report is getting the, or Mueller's testimony on Wednesday is going to get the bulk of the news, there's a lot of important things happening in the world um, that are more important than what little new Mueller may add to all of this. I should add that great expanses of the Arctic region are actually on fire, and we are having the hottest summers in recorded history. Uh, and I suppose civilization several hundred years from now could look back on our discussions and see that they were kind of quaint as the world was literally going up in flames around us. Or picking up on Evelyn's point that while we're talking about all of this and the controversy associated with it, both the Republican and the Democratic Party in the U.S. seem to be moving towards a budget settlement, which will actually increase funding for defense in a country that spends hundreds of billions of dollars more on defense than it needs to, uh, which creates risks um, uh, that we may uh, someday uh, see realized. And so... There's a lot of stuff going on now, and it's it's tempting to get caught up in the headlines. We don't think you should. That's why we think you should come back to Deep State Radio on a regular basis or follow Evelyn or follow Ed or follow Brian or follow the other people who regularly appear on this show. For more, go to the DSRnetwork.com, other podcasts, other content. Uh, join us again later this week. We have a special one-on-one -on -one interview um, with Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL to talk about uh, racism in American politics right now. We've got a one-on-one -on -one with perhaps America's foremost diplomat of his generation, Bill Burns, friend, head of the Carnegie Endowment, former Deputy Secretary of State, um, and we'll have a follow-up episode talking about the Mueller report uh, the Mueller's testimony after it actually happens. So lots to join us with this week. Go to the DSRnetwork.com, join up, become a member. Uh, and if you have a chance, uh, answer the questionnaire that we've sent out to everybody. It's helping us to uh, tune our lineup of shows and address the issues that are most important to you. Um, and it'd be great if you could go there and if you can become a member too, that helps us uh, grow this uh, enterprise. Anyway, Ed, Evelyn, Brian, thank you very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.